welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about representation and the role of the protagonist. Why is fair and diverse representation important to gaming? What games and studios are helping make gaming a more inclusive space? Also, is anyone else as bored of straight white male protagonists as I am? To help me answer these questions and many more is a character who's voiced by Nolan North, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? Hello. Hello. Uh, hello. <clears throat> uh, forget it. How's it going, guys? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And the uh, the other voice you're hearing is our amazing guest for today. That is Tanya DePass. She's the founder of I Need Diverse Games and a co-host on the Spawn on Me podcast. And I'm overjoyed to have her here because I, I really respect the work that she's doing in the, the video game space for, for all of us. So, Tanya, welcome to the show. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Of course. I um, Pleasure is all ours. I, I've said on the show a couple of times before, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the Spawn on Me podcast, so it's, it's a joy to have you here. Um, Tanya, what, what brought you to video games? What, brought you to, what made you a gamer like the rest of us? Um, well, actually, what made me a gamer is is a combination of arcades and first edition D and um, I'm a big old nerd. I've been a nerd forever. I'm I'm slightly older than D and D itself, um, but you know, I spent many many a misspent youth a summer in my youth at arcades, playing Street Fighter and Contra, and you know, I just I found games and fell in love with it. It was a place to hang out and. And make friends, and you know, if if anyone remembers being in arcade, lining up your quarters to be next, and and I never looked back. Kids can't really fully appreciate that experience anymore. There are some arcades, but now you just like slide a prepaid card into a slot. It doesn't quite have the same feel to it. <laughs> and also, games are like five bucks per play now. You know. Yeah, you can oh, play like three dollars to like play an arcade version of Fruit Ninja too. That's always fun. <laughs> what? Fruit Ninja? And they're all like um, a lot of them are like roller coasters now too. That's not fun. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been to one in years, so um, I might be out of touch. But last time I saw a Fruit Ninja game in the arcade, I was like, well, I guess guess this is over. <laughs> <laughs> I no longer under- understand this world anymore. Aw. Now, Tanya, um, you founded I Need Diverse Games, doing great work for for people of color in the video game industry. But tell tell our listeners a little bit about what, what that is and, and, and what that does. Um, so I Need Diverse Games started because I was just angry about video games around 6 in the morning, a little over, th- almost three, no, it is three years ago at this point. Um, so it was around the time when with the whole Ubisoft is too hard to animate women, we're inches from playable women, and I was just annoyed. <laughs> I was so friggin' annoyed. Oh Especially, my. Did they actually say that? Like, when, well, when was that? Um, that was earlier in 2014, and, and kind of what spawned that was someone asking about um, I think it was Unity was about to come out, which basically had the same white dude just in four different outfits. <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of like, come on, you all have had plenty of women in these Assassin's Creed games. You know, we already had Aveline de Grand Père, and granted she was in like kind of a mobile spinoff game, but you've still given us a protagonist that is not the same scruffy white dude and it honestly was a technical answer that just was not given very well. But at the time, it was just like, oh, women, those, those pesky women, they're so hard to animate. Oh, no, what do we do? And I was annoyed. I was annoyed early in the morning because anyone who follows me on Twitter knows I often have these kind of rants at, oh, God, early when I can't sleep. 
um, started adding I Need Diverse Games onto tweets. Some of my friends picked it up. A couple friends who have a much higher profile than I do. Uh, shout out to Carnethia and Mickey Kendall. Because at the time, she had like, you know, probably ten times my Twitter following, if not more. And, you know, she threw it out. Some game devs I'd met had followed, you know, threw it out. And it picked up Steam. Unfortunately, it also picked up Steam in the dark corners of the internet. So between those first mm-hmm. tweets and that sleepless morning and getting to work... I had to get block bots, things like that. Um, the nefarious dark dark side of gaming Twitter found it. And I'm ornery, so the more people tell me not <laughs> to do something, the more I go do the thing. So I talked about it more, gave it its own Twitter, gave it its own Tumblr and blog, and it was right time, right place. People were hungry for the conversation. A community grew out of it, started uh, guesting on podcasts. That's how I actually... I found out about Spawn on Me, got interviewed, and it the ball kind of kept rolling from there. Now, practically, what does I Need Diverse Games do? Because it's no longer just a hashtag, right? Like, Correct. What, what's the goal of, of I Need Diverse Games? Um, well, we're actually now a 501c3 nonprofit, and our goal is to help people get access to the industry, get in the industry, and stay in the industry. So part of that is um, we're part of the PAX Diversity Lounge now every year for most of the conventions, haven't made out to PAX Australia yet because, oh, God, money. Um, we also, you know, like we try to sponsor smaller collegiate events when we have the money because that nonprofit of being a nonprofit is is for real. Um, and then the biggest thing we do is we're part of the Game Developers Conference scholarship program. So every year they give us 25 passes to the conference and actually our uh, application process is going on right now. So it's 25 chances to get people, you know, into a week of professional development that they may not otherwise have a chance to go do because going to GDC is not cheap. Tickets, the level of tickets that we're given are about $1,800. Wow. Oh, geez. Yeah. What's like the vetting process? Like what, what kind of, uh, what communities do you reach out to? Um, we reach out to, you know, people of color, the queer community, um, you know, folks who are non-binary, anyone, anyone who is marginalized. Um, but you know, one one bad effect of this is that you know that nonprofit side of it means we don't have money to really give to people as well. We've actually gotten a couple of very generous donations earmarked just to help people go to GDC. Uh, but we've got a review committee of four people total that are in the industry. Uh, myself, uh, one of my friends who who has been in the industry about 12 years, and uh, Jane Ng is reprising um, being on the committee after this is the third year, and as well as another friend. So they're all industry folks, but from different focuses. So you can kind of look at it, and what we do is we actually try to strip as much identifying information, like really easily identifiable information. Um, but we leave things like, you know, if people fill out the demographic data so we can try to at least focus on people of color, who are queer, maybe both, who are at different intersections of marginalization because the biggest issue for a lot of people is access. And, you know, even if you can afford the trip to San Francisco or, you know, you buddy up with folks, you've got that week together, the ticket itself is 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 usually the biggest barrier. Yeah, I mean, the gaming development community is already so exclusive in, in that, you know, a lot of people want to be in that industry. So adding on top of that, just the the cost that it takes to network and, and meet people uh, who can help you along the way in your career, that's uh, that must be like an incredible hurdle for a lot of people. 
It is, but what I found now in the in the couple years we've done this and we're getting applications for year three is that a lot of people want to go to GDC because they think they want to get in the industry, not because they're like either in a program for it, they're in their first or second year, they're very junior in their studio, and this is a chance to go. Maybe the studio won't pay for them yet. Um, they, I think some people view it as like packs for E3. And, you know, a week of, this is professional development, like, there's stuff that's way over, you know, like, my head because I haven't made a game yet. Um, There are things where, unless you're in the nitty-gritty, and some of the stuff is very technical, like, there's an AI track, there's a narrative design track. So this isn't for the casual person who thinks, oh, I want to make video games one day. At least not at the level of pass that we're given. Um, For anyone who's just curious and may just want to go and maybe sit on a few advocacy sessions... We always recommend getting an expo pass because it's only a couple hundred dollars. And then you're there Wednesday to Friday versus a whole week in San Francisco, which can be very costly. What do you see as the future of I Need Diverse Games? You just mentioned that you you haven't made a game yet. Is that is that a part of what you're hoping to do with this program? Um, I would like to make a game. What I would like to do is, you know, kind of on a serious side, but also a tongue-in-cheek side, you know when people go, Oh, well, you know, if you have a trans, disabled, Latina protagonist, you're just capitulating to SJWs, when actually I know two people who fit that description. (laughs) So I want to make a game where there are people who are like this in this game, and there's not, you know, there's not a, I must find a reason for someone like this to exist in this world, when there are people existing in this world now who are like this, but people throw out that example because they think it's so ridiculous, not realizing nope, there's people walking around like that like that now, and you think that you're being sarcastic. Um, but I would love to collaborate with someone or a team of people, you know, that want to do something and go, you know, this is what a diverse game is, and these are people who just want to tell their stories. Because the thing is, a lot of people look at diversity, look at inclusion, and they assume that it has to be forced. There has to be a reason for diversity and inclusion when really a lot of people just would like to see themselves reflected without an ad- and I'm not going to say without an agenda because that's not true um, without their without the game going above and beyond to justify their existence um, and we'll get into this later but like that was one of the reasons why I love Mafia 3 and Watch Dogs 2 so much last year is that the protagonists were, were, were black dudes and there wasn't a hand-wringing special after-school moment explaining away why why this game has black dudes as leads they just were the leads and that was that and the game actually worked with that you see that in film you know jared and i both have have film backgrounds and that's something that i think about a lot um i love the movie brokeback mountain Mm -hmm. um but that's a it's like it's a it's a movie about those characters being homosexual and i look forward to the day when a character can just casually be homosexual and not have it be the point of the film. And I, we're starting to see that more. Um, again, I think like in video games, you see that more in like the indie film space. I think video games are a little further away from from having those, you know, this like true um, ideal diversity represented in games. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think just the fact that, you know, the, the hashtag I need diverse games got so popular kind of shows that hopefully the medium of video games is is growing and maturing in a way where it's deserving of having these conversations um you know film has always been a slow moving beast but 
you kind of hope with the internet and just how diverse video games are all across the world and how many people play games for different reasons. Um, it's, I think I, I hope it's a sign of, of good things to come. Um, I was really happy to see the reception of the character in new Assassin's Creed, which I haven't played yet, but people seem to uh, really respect the way that that protagonist has been um, used in that story. Oh, the new Assassin's Creed is amazing. Now, if people do want to help out I Need Diverse Games or receive help from I Need Diverse Games, where can people find that stuff? And we'll give you an opportunity at the end of the show to to echo this as well. But I, I think that this work is important, so I want to get it up, up front here at the beginning of the show. Um, so the easiest way, honestly, right now is if you have about like one to five bucks a month you can spare, we have a Patreon, which is patreon.com backslash I Need D-I-V-G-M-S. Uh, if you are not the committing type and just want to throw a few bucks our way, we do. We can accept PayPal, which is at indg at ineeddiversegames.org. Um, and then we occasionally do like streaming, fundraising things. If you are someone in the industry and want to donate things like, you know, hardware or software, or if you just want to support what we're doing to get folks into the industry, Always happy to, to have a call with folks, again, at INDG at I Need Diverse Games and go from there. We also do diversity consulting. That's one of the other things that we wind up doing. Um, we're getting more tabletop folks who want to do consulting and some mobile folks. So whenever I do talks, whenever I do panels, that's something that comes up as well. So what I like to do is get a network of folks who can um, do these consultations because I am one person. I cannot be the diversity consult for everything. Um, so that's kind of where we are. And we're working on our Twitch channel as well. So we're at twitch.tv backslash INDG currently. Right on. Yeah. And I, I encourage anyone of our listeners who, who's able to help out to go check it out and, uh, and get involved. Can we talk a little bit about PAX Unplugged? Sure. I'm jealous. I'm jealous that you got to go. <laughs> How was it? Um, it was good for the little bit I saw of it. Um, it was the first year that it ran. So for those that don't know, PAX Unplugged is a new con that ran in November in Philadelphia, and it was all tabletop focused, unlike previous other unlike other PAX events, which have a tabletop component, but aren't specific to tabletop. Um, it was good. I did get to get out and see a couple panels. Um, the only issues I heard of slash saw was kind of signups that first day because it was just kind of unclear, like how do I sign up for games? Because there was no pre-sign up online or anything. Um, and, you know, because the Philadelphia Convention Center is kind of split almost into two buildings, it felt like, there was some confusion about this is where panels are, this is where games are. And, you know, it's the usual packs, oh my god, I must get my merch now, or I'll never get it. And, you know, the merch lines and the initial lines to get in were kind of ridiculous, but it was good. I hope next year, if we go back, that I can have more people to help with our table in the Diversity Lounge. So I was pretty much stuck there aside from being on panels. Were you there doing diversity consulting? Is that the what you were referring to earlier? Uh, no. Diversity, when I do diversity consulting, it's usually either online or I come in, I do a talk, or it's an ongoing process. Uh, PAX, for the last, I want to say four or five years, has had a diversity lounge, which basically orgs that are all about diversity and inclusion have a, have a dedicated space at the convention and like a lot of people do giveaways they do other stuff at pax west uh microsoft did a thing with gaming for everyone where 
for those that were like 501c3 orgs, they gave us a placard for our table and for a, a suggested donation, people could get swag. So the idea was to help us raise money. Um, and so with this one, um, Wizards of the Coast and Green Ronin were very generous and sent us some prizes. And that helped us raise money for, for the work that we do. Um, and so the Diversity Lounge has been a good thing. And then PAX South is the next event that is coming up. And it, it was good because I feel like tabletop is more in need of diversity work even than video games. How so? I'm, I'm not like a huge tabletop guy. I know Steve is, so he might be able oh, to, yeah. to bounce off of this a little bit more. But um, like, what kind of issues do you think come up as far as needing diversity in, in tabletop games? Um, let's see. So this year was my first year going to Gen Con, which is a now, now 50th year convention running in Indianapolis, which is all tabletop, you know, D&D, etc. Started there and, well, it feels like it started there. I could be incorrect because I know some tabletop nerd will, will well actually me. Um, <laughs> I So I've gone to Gen Con. Gen Con is not far for me to get to, but it's never occurred to me to go. And... It was overwhelmingly old white dudes and older white women, even at a convention in 2017, where tabletop is is something that you think wouldn't be as still siloed off as it is, but it was very much that way. And, you know, it's not cheap to go to Gen Con um, because in addition to your past, you still got to pay for some games. I probably could count the total number of people of color I saw on both hands over four days. And um, whenever I've done diversity panels, either at a tabletop con, I was the guest of honor at OrcaCon this year in January. Um, I'll be going back next January. Even for a convention focused on tabletop diversity, it still was very white based on where it is, which is Seattle. You know, there's a privilege to going to conventions. And a lot of people of color just don't feel welcome. They don't feel safe in tabletop spaces because of either things people have done at tables. They don't see themselves in the source material. The people of color I know making tabletop games have their own communities. And it's like, why am I going to spend all this money to go to someplace and be excluded face to face? I'm already excluded in other spaces. You know, if you look at Twitch and the tabletop section, it's called Dungeons and Dragons, not called just tabletop. It's primarily white dudes who are doing these tabletop shows on Twitch and other spaces. We don't see ourselves. The fact that people reacted negatively to D&D making the iconic human a black female shows there's still a big issue. It's fantasy. There are dragons, but people still need to do a song and dance about, oh, there's brown people. Oh, my God. Why Why are they here? Brown well, why do you have to make this political? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So That's I was on the... Yeah. Oh, no. It's, it, that and historical accuracy, that is guaranteed to make me make that face where friends <laughs> have told me they want to gift this face. <laughs> because i think my eye starts twitching and i look like i'm about to spit fire when i hear historical accuracy when it comes to fantasy and you know people will do this song and dance oh historical accuracy but i'm like there are orcs and 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 magic and it's just i get tired of it um i'm i joined a panel at at pax unplugged which is queers three-sided die about diversifying your games we basically just made it an hour-long q a and i talked about this online post convention but it was full of basically, I want permission to do X questions. And I get this at PAX and other video game-centric events. It's always, I want to put a person of color in my campaign, but I'm a cis white dude. How do I do that? 
And I'm kind of like, do you know any actual black people outside of this room and the people on this panel? You know, maybe talk to them or actually read a book, use Google or, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've got, let me, let me Google that for you on the back of my phone. And I really just want to hold it up and go, you know, Google exists. The Moors, there were people of color in medieval times. This is not new. So, you know, that fight is still ongoing. It feels still very 001 conversations, not even 101 conversations are happening in the tabletop space. At least the conventions and stuff that I go to. Uh, but I get it at PAX. I've seen it at Game Developers Conference, which is a professional event. Um, this year, Rami did a panel... And a bunch of other folks did a panel on Muslim representation in games. Very first question. I don't know any Muslim game developers. And Rami legit was like, did you know Google exists? <laughs> you made like your way to this panel. You on your phone in like five seconds. Right. You made your way to this panel. There are five people on this panel. So maybe get their business cards and, and not ask a real stupid question. <laughs> but, you know, this is the level of discourse that we're looking at with oh my god, I can't find people of color in the industry when there is Game Developer Color Expo, there's Black Game Devs, a an opt-in list people started, I Need Diverse Games, all these other spaces where if you got out of your bubble, you could actually find them. You know? So it's yeah. it's it's frustrating because I've, I've been on the receiving end and I've sat in the audience of people basically want the okay to... to they want the permission to do better, and it's like, I can't give you that permission. If you want to do better, go do better because you want to and you should. Don't expect me to hold your hand through it. Right. It seems like they're okay with the status quo because it's easy to keep that going, but to have to actually do the research and figure out how to do it well seems difficult and challenging, so that people just don't do it. They, or or they do it once, they screw it up, and then they get really scared. Yeah, in in regards to that, I feel like entropy is a is a big part of why people feel that need to ask permission, right? Like we're all everyone's sort of stuck in this status quo of like, you know, all the board games around me that I see feature white faces. Is it okay for me to? you know, to include a black character or a gay character or an Asian character, you know, like, is it, is it okay for me to do this? And, and I think that that's why you probably see and hear a lot of those questions of like, well, I want to include a black character, but the industry, you know, this, this, um, everything's telling me that like, it's not okay. Right. Cause I don't see that in my surroundings. Mm -hmm. So is it okay? Is that something that's, that's okay for me to do? So then you get these people that show up to panels and stuff that are that ask those those questions. Yeah, and the other part too is that a lot of people are stuck on I need a reason for this POC character to be there. I need a reason for this queer character to be there. And it's like you do realize that people well, I mean, if you're a person of color, you can't really hide it, but someone who's queer, for instance, no one really walks up to someone and goes, Hey, I'm queer especially in a in a fancy setting where you may not know the rules of engagement what if someone is outed and you know that could get them killed depending on how you set up your game if it's not a queer friendly environment um, one of the questions I got well the panel got but I, I took it on because I was that person 
um, someone was talking about he does a live play podcast, and he basically wanted to know if it was legitimate that his character suddenly, quote-unquote, decided or realized that he was bisexual. And I'm like, do you understand how this works? No one is, like, why? I'm like, am I not an actual person sitting here talking to you? And he was like, well, yeah, kind of like that was a stupid question. I'm like, same thing goes with your character discovering they're bisexual. Everyone has a different discovery process. If if they realize, oh, hey, I'm attracted to my best buddy, and that leads to you saying the character discovers they're bisexual, and that's their orientation, that's pretty close to what actually happens. You don't need legitimacy. You don't need to manufacture a reason for this to be in the game. And if it doesn't fit the game, don't do it. You know, I think people always want... They feel like there has to be this perfect storm of there's a reason to do it, but it still fits the game, and then people have to go along with it. And it's like just it, because with tabletop especially, you are creating the story, you're creating the world that these characters live in, and especially if you are the GM, you're making the rules. You could say, you know, everybody in the game is queer by default. Fuck it, that's my rule. <laughs> now go forth and be gay as you want to be. So. You know, always wonder about these. Oh God, I can't do this. There needs to be a reason. I mean, I think like that's just basic character development. I've gone through like acting exercises. I've taken acting classes, and it's just a, like one-on-one acting. The first thing is like, what what did your character have for breakfast this morning? Okay, well, why did they have that for breakfast this morning? You know, and you you kind of go through that, and you don't have to explicitly say all of those things out loud as exposition, but you should keep those backstories in mind. And that should affect, you know, the, the, the choices your character makes and where they're coming from. Uh, exactly. A game that I thought did this kind of well was uh, Life is Strange, where um, you're playing a teenage girl and her best friend is queer. But it's not really the highlight of the... There's not like a big story moment, really, that necessarily points that out. It, she just is. And you can kind of see like that reflected in some of the choices she makes and her relationships with other characters. So, you know, it's, I think a lot of it stems from, I, I bring this up a lot on this podcast, is just lazy storytelling. They don't want to spend time with that development process of a character because, you know, especially some smaller studios, they don't have the budget to, or uh, it just isn't a priority. But it's a, it's a big it's a big deal because if you're going to be representing people that you don't necessarily have a one-to-one connection with or you don't have experience with that like you have to do the research and and figure out why that they are doing the things that they do yeah and you know even if it never makes it into the game a lot of stories will have a character bible they'll have a development bible and backstory even if that even if players never see that lore it helps you kind of know what the character's motivations are be that tabletop video game or even if you're just writing fiction you know, there's so much backstory that a lot of readers and, and gamers will never see, but it helps make that character a lot more realistic. And it's funny because I actually really hated Life is Strange. <laughs> um, I played it. I did play the game. So I'm sure someone's like, oh, you didn't even play it. I did. It was very painful. I got through those five episodes and hated my life. Oh. Um, well, because for me, it's like these are two young women, clearly not written by women. And the weird affectations and some British slang, some American slang, you know, we finally, and then we finally see a black character that's a student and he's like the jock that's trying to sell them drugs. Really? This this is the game experience that I'm getting. Yeah. But everyone acted like, oh, it's so perfect. It's this, 
and you know, and this is me being that person, but I, I get very tired of, of anything with any kind of woman in it is the perfect feminist representation in media. And then no one thinks about the women of color that are left out, the queer women that are left out, the trans women that are left out, because it's always like the same story about the same faction of, of white girl, but it's perfect representation and I get real tired of it. And that's how I felt with Life is Strange. And it's like, you know, I played it. I It wasn't my thing. And off Yeah, no, pipe, definitely. I, I can see where you're you coming know. from on that. And it's like a straight white male. It's like those are things that I don't think about because it's just not in my realm of experience. But that's why I'm enjoying having these conversations because to think about that kind of thing, I think it improves your overall understanding, the way that you, the conversations you have end up affecting the ways that you think about things. Let's talk about representation in the protagonist's role in the history of video games. This is not really an easy one. The original Oregon Trail was made in 1971 uh, using the programming language BASIC. It was simply text-based only at the time that it was made. And then it was iterated upon... Um, it was eventually picked up by this company, MECC, and distributed by them, and just through their publishing had various editions come out where they would implement things like um, like graphics, because the original one didn't even, didn't even play on a system that had a monitor. It was like a paper that would type out, and you would type your response back to it. Like That's how old school we're talking about Oregon Trail being. Okay, and why are we, having, why are we talking about that game in this discussion? So Oregon Trail... Um, at the beginning of that game, you will pick a character that you want to play as. Now, in the original text-based version of the game, uh, I don't think there were any explicit uh, there weren't any explicit references to very much about your character except for kind of their their career. I I, th- I believe it was assumed you were playing as a man, but there was nothing about your character sort of like uh, ethnically that was. Uh, explicitly stated in that game. Uh, and then as it was iterated upon throughout the years, between 1971 all the way up to 1985, and then even beyond that, they started to implement things like like graphics, like I mentioned. And it was originally, the, the first graphics for this game were just, it was for the Apple II, had, uh, it was just like that sort of iconic solid green color palette where everything is just green. But then in later versions, um, as you're, as you're approaching 1985 through all of these releases, it was revealed that you are in, the protagonist for that game is in fact a white male, straight white male, um, you know, head, head of his family, leading them across the country from Independence, Missouri to Willamette Valley, Oregon. And I put this one in our show notes because even though there was no like, ex, like the description of what your character you know, like your character's background and their ethnicity and their sexuality and all of those things weren't explicit originally. Eventually, they sort of clarified it. The reason that all of this is kind of hard to nail down is because, like, how do you how do you say, like, what the first human being in a video game was when this one starts out um, as text only? You know, does that does that count as a representation of of a human being character? I think there's a good case to be made that you are always playing a, a straight white male character in this game. Gotcha. That seems about right. I think as we have this conversation, this is something that will come up quite often is that obviously there's no such thing as a a video game that has perfect representation of, you know, all 
sexes and all genders and all orientation and all ethnicity and all of these, you know, sort of these categories that we use to, uh, to judge representation in a game. But some games have positives and negatives. And I think it's important that you, that we do our best to recognize when, when games are successful at certain things and also at the same time recognize when those games are presenting, uh, you know, problematic issues as well. When we're talking about representation in the protagonist role, what, what are we talking about specifically? What, what does representation mean to you, Tanya, when we're talking about that? Um, it means, you know, a chance to see myself as much as you can in a game. Um, so, you know, if there, if, especially if there's a character creator, and I know, and I know we'll touch on it in depth, but if there's a character creator and not a pre-gen, then the chance to have different skin tones, have natural black hair, have hair that is not the same, you know, I want to speak to your manager, Bob, in 30 different colors. <laughs> Come on, you've seen this haircut a lot in video games. Um, but, you know, have body diversity, have, you know, is this, are we able to make a visibly disabled character, not visibly are they, you know, is this, are we always forced into the uber, super buff male body type or, you know, the, the skinny size two with giant boobs and a big ass, you know, archetype for a female character? Do we get a chance to even make a more androgynous character for someone who may identify as a gender or use different pronouns? Can the game let me choose my pronouns? You know, Giving us a wider gamut, and yes, I understand there's limitations to technology. I understand there's limits to development. But in a game where, in a in a in an industry where, like for The Witcher Three, Geralt's hair can grow back as you're wandering the countryside, and you have to eventually go get a haircut and a shave, you would think we could have a little bit more body diversity, or at least have natural black hair in a game, and not have it be the same '70s exploitation afro that everyone but the black character can have now why why is this conversation about diversity important like i <laughs> it sounds stupid like it, it sounds like a stupid question because obviously it's important and we can all can kind of um, come up with reasons why but to you tanya why is having this discussion important um well the overall discussion in general because a lot of people just don't think about it but specifically when it comes to character creators, because a lot of people want to take that and go, look, diversity, you can make a character that's sort of kind of maybe in the right light on a blue moon. It looks like you. Aren't you satisfied when really a lot of character creators fall short? I mean, I love Dragon Age. People that talk to me for five minutes are going to know how much I love Dragon Age, Mass Effect. But... First game, you couldn't be much darker than a brown paper bag. Then your family didn't even match you, even if you did make a kind of sort of dark character. Um, second game, your character at least had quote-unquote genetics to pass through, but you still couldn't have natural black hair. You had really bad braids, where I'm like, braids and lifestyle hawks living don't go together. <laughs> um, I mean, you're out there killing stuff all the time. You, you, when do you have time to like neatly wash and plate your hair however <laughs> long that'll take and then we get dragon age inquisition where we finally get darker characters and you can make a dark skin character but then the hair was lacking because let's be real 
if you're out here rocking a fade in the field when you're doing all stuff traipsing around with your inquisitor who is walking around with the barber kit to keep your hair looking this nice (laughs) (laughs) you know your hair would grow out you would have mats you would have whatever it is your hair turns into without maintenance out in the woods because some someone bless their heart because it wouldn't go ever be me mapped out the travel times in these games we're looking at at months weeks a year in some cases to go from a to b and it's just like you know what your hair would look like after three months of travel with presumably without hot water soap attendance because you're the inquisitor at some point so you've got people handing you know hand and foot waiting on you at, at some point so do you can you imagine what you'd look like after being out in the field if you gave your character the short natural fro? What you'd look like by the time yeah. you got back to the keep? You know, and but that's not a it's not an excuse. And people always want to throw that at me. Oh, character creator, diversity, there you go. And I'm like, that's not how that works. Because the other problem, the game rarely, if ever, acknowledges what your character looks like. And and for this I use Dragonish specifically because Inquisition tried, but it was more a racial thing versus a, your character is brown. Your character is a brown human in a place where you don't see a lot of brown folks. And we did see more brown NPCs in Inquisition, but it's not the standard, because fantasy is set up to believe it's super very white. And, you know, you think somebody would remark on the fact that you've got this tall brown elf carrying a broadsword walking around, but nobody does. So the game, the narrative does not interrogate what you make your character look like. Well, let's let's talk about character creation because I think that is a, a at least a part of this conversation. And I, I want to um, start out by mentioning something that um, from an article I'd read. So this is from an article titled "Now You See Me: Representation as Innovation." It was written by Kim Belair for GameIndustry.biz, mm-hmm. and this was something that I thought was uh, interesting as I was reading it. Uh, and I'll, I'll try to go through it quick because it's kind of a long quote, but she said, um, when I came to Mass Effect, I created a black woman darker than myself and with significantly better makeup skills and made her my Commander Shepard, the game's protagonist. Now, in one of the first playable areas in Mass Effect 2, your fully customized Shepard must escape a space station and rendezvous with the characters Jacob Taylor and Miranda Lawson meeting Jacob first. For those who haven't played, Jacob is a black man, a Marine, and your first interaction with him is crouching behind cover in a close quarters conversation. The moment was powerful and remarkable. Two black characters, neither cast as a criminal, a gang member, a savage, a stereotype, or a sidekick, meeting and conversing one-on-one, the only two people on screen. And now, when I started to put together... Oh, and uh, and thank you, Kim. I, I reached out to her and made sure it was okay um, that I shared her ideas. So I, I appreciate her um, letting me share her personal experience on this. But when I started thinking about this idea for this episode, character creators crossed my mind as... as you know, how, how do they factor into this discussion about diversity and about representation? And this is something that I have to admit, you know, didn't didn't come to mind. Like, I, I think if I had created a black character for my Commander Shepard, that that moment wouldn't have resonated the same way for me as it did for her. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I thought that that was, I think that that being able to have a character creator allow you to have those experiences is powerful, but I don't think it's the the perfect solution to representation in games. I, I think that there it presents like certain positive things like that, but I, I also had a, another experience that I that I want to share 
Um, but before I jump to that, Jared, did you have do you have any uh, thoughts on character creation? Because I don't want to just jump like straight into where I think character creation fails. I want to if there's more positive stuff, I kind of want to discuss that. I mean, as far as character creation and representation, it's you know, every character creator is just about surface level appearances. It's never actually about creating character, if that makes sense. It's never about what were these what was the past experiences of this character it's always been a superficial here's what your hair looks like here's how far apart your eyes are or uh, your lips choose from one of 12 you know it's 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 more of like what do you want your character what do you want to stare at for the next 40 hours or however long the game is well so you just jump straight into the the negatives all right thanks jared <laughs> <laughs> that's what i was trying well, to you know what? doing Let's be real. If Jared hadn't done it, I might have because look, I mean, I just I jumped back into Skyrim recently because Skyrim is everywhere. And look at how basically not the Imperials, who's the other the other faction, like the Nords, Uh, the Nords. The first time I played this game, I didn't realize just how terribly racist they were. And the Stormcloaks, that's what they are. And one of my friends was just like, um, you're playing a Red Guard. Why did you join the Nords? Because Red Guards are visibly brown. You know, they they stand out from other folks. And she was just like, you're brown. Why did you basically join the in-game KKK? <laughs> and I was like, you've got a point. Because I, until I got really deep into the storyline, I had no clue. I'm just like, well, they're not the Imperials. And I haven't come across the Khajiit. And I don't want to be in the Dark Brotherhood. And I was like, oh, I've made a terrible decision. And then I murdered all of them. So it worked out. Whoops, the join well, the KKK. I, so I, I hate when that happened. So I have a I have a question about this. So uh-huh. and this is kind of going off of something I think you said, Jared, which is in a concise narrative, you can have those aspects of representation be meaningful parts of the story. So then my question is like, why even include a character creator if sort of the characterization that you've that you're picking doesn't have any effect on the game i think character creators are still important because if the if the idea of a game like mass effect or dragon age or skyrim or dragon's dogma is to give you as a player the chance to have that fantasy immersion of i'm the one saving the galaxy i'm the one saving thetis or what have you or I'm the Dragonborn. Giving you the chance to make your character as close to you as possible or an approximation or what you would look like in the setting is a good immersive tool. That said, I know a lot of times writing is not the forefront. Writing is not the be-all, end-all and where people are in terms of the game. Because a lot of times the game is kind of set and then the writers have to wrap the story around it. Um... So it's not as if you're just running around out there and and narrative first and foremost, then the game is built around the narrative, which would be ideal because there's a lot of narrative things where I look at this and I just go, that makes no sense. But, you know, I didn't make the game and the game's in my hands and now it's a little late to change it. Um, it, For for a player, for me, if I can sit there with Shepard or Hawk or the Warden, and get as close as I can to me, that is the fantasy, that is the immersion, that is me giving them my money and my time to have that illusion, as it were, of saving the galaxy. 
Because for a lot of us, games are escapism. And if I can have escapism as close as possible to what I look like and say, hey, a brown chick can save the galaxy, for me, that's great. Now, if the game's narrative could catch up, that would be all the better. That was the uh, that was the positivity I was looking for from you, Jared, when I was saying stay on, stay on the positive side of things. Oh, no, no. You, you came to the wrong place. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so I want to share an, another, um, I guess, short story about... Uh, around this idea of character creation, something that happened to me recently, which was I was watching um, a panel that you were sitting on, Tanya. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was at the, uh, uh, let's see, it was at the Game Developers of Color Expo. Mm-hmm. The panel was called Diverse Character Design and Representation in Games. And you were, um, <laughs> sorry to, I guess, <laughs> say what you were doing at, on that panel to yourself, but for the listeners, the the panel, you were there talking about an article that you had co-written, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it, one of the big parts of that article was talking about um, how the technology of video games is designed to represent white characters. Like when, when people sit down at their computer and design a game world, they, the template they're using to model their lighting and, and all that stuff is basically... A white, you know, is a, is a white character. Everything's designed around being white. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I'd finished watching that, and then I got a notification that you were on uh, Twitch playing Skyrim. So I was like, okay, I'll hop over and watch Tanya play in some Skyrim. And I went over there, and the character that you created in Skyrim is a, is a black character. And you were um, you were at the part where you're getting your uh, the dragon what is it, dragonborn powers. Yeah, your first shout. And you're standing in this, you're standing in a darkly lit room with all of these uh, old white guys that are all lit like perfectly. Uh-huh. And your character, and your character in that instant was like a silhouette. And I, and I had another one of those moments where I was like, like, holy shit, she's right. <laughs> like, and this is, this is again, one of those, I think, issues with um, the character creation, with this idea of the character creator is that these games, um, from a narrative standpoint, are not built from the ground up to accommodate different types of, of you know, different uh, representations in that protagonist role. But also from like even just a visual standpoint, they're they're not necessarily set up to ac- accommodate you know people who look not white. And it it really made me like it, it made me really aware that representation in video games is more than just having a black character mm-hmm. it's it's how you build your game from the ground up you can't make a game and then decide last minute like hey i want this i want this character to be black so we've got some diversity in here no you need to make sure that like the technology around that supports that representation and that was like a a, a pretty eye opening experience for me cuz it was like it it happened to me right away where I noticed it after you'd pointed it out. I, <laughs> I know you're you're tired of you said you're tired of people saying like oh yeah, that thing you said I I, I noticed that thing, but um, I thought that was a uh, a funny a funny experience that I just had recently. Uh, I want to um, give a shout out to Yusuf Cole, who actually he he had the idea of for the article after seeing Moonlight. Yes. And, you know, if you see Moonlight, you're like, oh, my God, black people in a movie and they don't look ashy. They, you, and you can see them in all scenes. And they actually thought about how dark skin looks under cinematic light. But a lot of games don't do that. I mean, if you played Mass Effect, if you made a character as dark as you could in certain scenes, especially in two, your character literally disappears. Jeez. 
So, yeah, technology technology is great when it works and when people actually put the forethought into it. To me, it just highlighted like how, again, how important this discussion is, but like how far reaching it is. It's not just, you know, oh, I put a black character in my game or, oh, I I put a gay character. You know, I, I had this character say out loud that they're gay. No, there's there's a lot more that goes into it and it has to happen from the moment that you start making your game and not as like some last minute thing that gets, that gets um, added into it. Right. Um, so what are some other reasons that diverse representation is important in video games? Um, it's important because, you know, like look at a lot of the movies, cause you said you both have a movie background. Look at things like Moana and um, home. I love where, Moana. People who people who know me on like social media know that like Moana is my jam right now. And they're like, we get it. You love Moana. <laughs> uh, but you know, look at the ways in which people respond to that. Like people finally seeing themselves in there, in a game. And you know, it's but it's not just the characters on screen. It's something like E3 or PAX where the people making the games look like you. It's not just oh this character looks like me and I kind of sort of can make myself. This is the the CEO, the creative director of this game is someone who looks like me. And, you know, no guarantee that they're going to have the same issues, worry about the same things you do, but at least you can see someone at a point that you'd like to get to. You know, like at E3 Impacts, we always see the same white dudes, you know, love Ubisoft, but there's always Aisha Taylor who's always the one that's out there for Ubisoft and, and Rainbow Six. You can find some other black chicks beside her. Um, now, and we it, always, uh, yeah, I would let me not rant about that because I feel the way. <laughs> no, the, the, I, I enjoy your rants typically. Um, <laughs> is there something about video games that creates that, like a, a barrier? Is there something like inherent about the art of, of video games or is it kind of like what we were talking about earlier where it's just sort of this long standing history of of whiteness in video games that kind of makes it um, uninviting for uh, people who, who don't see themselves in, you know, represented in video games? Ooh, um, I've talked about this before and I call it Gamer Manifest Destiny. And for so long... White dudes have been told that they are the pinnacle, they are the audience, they are the ones that are catered to, all the characters look like them. And then any sense of change, any hint of change, freaks some people out. They're like, oh my god, there's a black character, what do you mean All every other game that comes out this year won't will, will be like me, but hey, this one character isn't like me, so I'm going to throw a fit. That's where I think it is. And, you know, when we see things like oh, those SJWs are taking over gaming, and oh my god, all of these black characters, when in reality there were three black characters out of over 170 games that came out in 2016 across all spectrums, that is not taking over. That is like not even a whole percentage point of representation. But the people that will run with it and go, oh my god, they're taking over, and what about me? What about Call of Duty? And, and you know... Battlefield 1 had the Harlem Hellfighters. This game isn't for me anymore when you don't even see your own character. And the Harlem Hellfighters are historically accurate and they actually existed. People don't know what to do with themselves. Like, they literally don't know what to do in terms of something isn't 
for me, it like that bird, that tweet, that Twitter account, I'm mad when it not are about me. That's what <laughs> it feels like most well, days. I, I, think there, I think there might be like a, um, a psychological thing going on. Psychologists will refer to something called the uh, social identity model, which is mm. this idea that like human beings, we evolved to survive in, in packs essentially like in, and that turned into sort of like uh, tribalism and part of that evolution in the brain is to be able to quickly recognize who you know and who you don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the, the problems with video games is that so many of these, you know, so many games have a, a straight white male character as the protagonist. And I mean, I, let's get even more specific than that. Like <laughs> they've got a, a cisgendered straight uh, Christian male between the ages of 25 and 45 uh, with uh, with a five o'clock shadow. Like you can, you can almost get that specific with it. And when you see that image repeated over and over again, I think some people allow that to become sort of their, their personal identity that like mm-hmm. that this is like, this is my group, right? Like I see all these, I see all these protagonists represented this way. I see gamers represented this way in the media and it, and it establishes this notion that like, this is, this is safe. I know what this is, you know, in our, in our, in our dumb lizard brains we go like this is this is what i know and when something comes along if it's a you know if it's a a person or if it's a character in a game and they don't match that idea of you know of what we see our tribe as then that can come across to people as like some sort of attack on their their personal identity and i don't and i I don't bring this up as a way to say like to excuse any of this behavior because I think, I think it causes some like really, really terrible, toxic behavior. And uh, I, I just think it helps to maybe explain why video games sort of self gate in a way, but I want to like, how do we fix it? Like, what can we, what can we do? Like what can happen to sort of try to overcome these, these issues that we're seeing? You know, to I don't me, know this, if I this had an answer for that. A lot of these things are like the war on Christmas to me. It's like people, a lot of Christians, they say, you know, you can't say happy, you can't say Merry Christmas anymore. It's it's a, there's a war on Christmas. It's like no, we're just asking you to acknowledge that there are other religions, other pe- other people's beliefs that not everybody is the same as you. And a lot of people somehow have have converted that in their minds to a, a, they're being personally attacked. Uh, and their values are being challenged. But I think that is that is that analogous. I mean, yeah, I think you're you're hitting on the the exact same thing. I don't know how to get through to those people though, because I I think that to them it's like you said, it is like a it's a personal attack when someone that you don't recognize comes into your space. It's a personal attack, and there's people who are willing to see within themselves like how ridiculous that notion is that like if someone who looks a little different than me or behaves a little different than me uh, or has different preferences than me comes into my space it's not like you know it's not a bad thing it, in in most cases it can it can be a good thing um but before we before we let me get like too far down the road of like college <laughs> professor um what are what are some games that do handle representation well Tanya, I'll pass it to you first. Uh, we, we'd already kind of talked a little bit about Mafia 3, but are there any other games in your mind that handle 
diversity and representation responsibly? Um, Watch Dogs 2, which, you know, full disclosure, I got a review copy of and wrote a piece for, uh, wrote a piece about at Polygon, um, because they could have just easily gone with the, the board hacker dude that made me hate the first game so much, and just made the character a black dude, but still had the same horrible, horrible protagonist, but they put in the work, they got a consultant, which I found out was actually one of my friends after I wrote my piece, and they had a scene, and, and it was the focus of my Polygon piece, that they had this microaggression scene between Marcus and one of the other hackers at, at, the, at the one other black dude's legit day job. And it was about microaggressions being a black person in tech, being a black person in, in an office setting. They didn't have to do it. That could have easily been left out. It could have been cut out. But it was there and it was very profound because I've had those uncomfortable moments. I've had those terrible moments in an office setting where you've had the white coworker who is sure you're up to something, is trying to prove why you don't really deserve your job and that you're a diversity hire. And, and it was very profound and it was there. And the fact that they, one, included it to make sure they had diversity consultants because Ubisoft has the office, the studio that did Watch Dogs is in Montreal which is a very white studio, shows that they, they want to do the work, they want to do better, and they learn the lessons from the first game, which I hated. I stood on their own stage and told them how much I hated that game. Um, <laughs> I did. Is there a video I, of that it, somewhere that I can is. go see? There is. I will <laughs> I send you a link. Um, you know, and obviously Mafia 3 and, you know, the guys at Hangar 13 were very gracious in talking with us um, at Spawn on Me and on my podcast when I still had it. Um, and also Assassin's Creed Origins. You know, Bayek is voiced by a black dude. They had someone, like, one of the creative, one of the main creative folks is Middle Eastern. And it shows. Also, the year they took off from the franchise. Assassin's Creed Origins is probably the best Assassin's Creed game I've ever played. But it's so rich. There are brown people everywhere, as it should be. It's set in Egypt. But, you know, we don't get to see that normally. We don't get to see people having lives and... And going about their daily business in a game. And, you know, the Greeks and the Romans are some of the most trifling characters I've ever met. And it's not always the black characters that are terrible. And it's it's amazing. And it's beautiful. And I like to just go, to go run around and climb pyramids. And uh, with Mafia 3, Lincoln Clay is a terrible man. He is, a, you know, a cold-hearted killer. But he gets his revenge story. And we don't let black men have that in games. They're thugs. They're, if they live long enough, or they're a pawn, or something. But he goes out and he gets his revenge. And that's what drew me to the game, because he finally gets to have that story. He gets, he gets to take what's his and take, you know, take back what was taken from him, in a manner of speaking. And I can't think of a game where I've had that chance as a black character. So I took it and ran with it. Yeah, it's... it's... It seems in some sometimes like prohibitive to have an experience where the character where your protagonist is not a straight white dude, which is part of the reason why I think this conversation is important. I think that having the straight white male protagonist be the the <clears throat> default, the norm, it limits the the kinds of experiences that we can all have as gamers. It limits the kinds of stories that can be told, you know, at I think some people shy away from this discussion because 
they'll say like, oh, it, you know, it doesn't affect me, right? Like I see myself in games. I don't have a problem. The problem is someone else's problem, but it's not. It's we are shortchanging ourselves. I mean, and I mean, like I'm talking about gamers as a whole, like our community is getting shortchanged by not being open or as open as we could be to the ideas of diversity. We're not getting all the different kinds of stories that can be told when you play as a Muslim character or when, or when you play as uh, an old character, or when you play as a black character, you know, there's, there's so many unique avenues that these, um, that this can like open up, but we, we shut ourselves off from it and it, it, it harms all of us. Even if some of the, you know, some of the people out there, the, the most vocal people out there can't or don't want to see that. Uh, a couple yeah. of games that I played this year that I, I really enjoyed, but when I started thinking about them in this context, I was curious what you felt, Tanya. A game like Hellblade. Did you get around to playing that? Mm, no. It got a lot of it got a kudos for exploring um, mental illness and things like that, but you play as uh, a woman coming from, it, it doesn't really specify, but some kind of like a Viking community or Viking tribe, but... Uh, the model that she's modeled after to me just looks like some regular white person with, but she has dreadlocks and it's, yeah, I'm not sure that they totally nailed that aspect of her character. Um, similar thing with horizon zero dawn. There's a lot of tribalism in that game because it's, you know, years and years after the apocalypse, everyone is kind of uh, gathered back into their own groups and there's people wearing headdresses and people, um, kind of representing different types of cultures, but most people in that game are white. Uh, there are a couple black characters, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about uh, either of those games and how they represented other people or other cultures. It's funny you should say that. Um, I finished Horizon Zero Dawn. I did play it. Um, I've now played the DLC. I, I got through the game, and I felt it was very much a... I, I can't think of a polite way to say this. Um, it was pretty much a white fantasy of, of of saving the noble savages to me. And Aloy never seemed like she really wanted to do anything. Like, she didn't want to do any of this. And she became this chosen one against her will. And, you know, while she had braids, everyone else had dreadlocks. And I brought this up at the GDOC Expo panel that you were mm -hmm. referring to earlier. Why is it we must go to, oh my god, tribalist, and, and we're going to do faux whatever? Apparently no one realizes dreadlocks actually take a lot of work to maintain. Um, sure. I have dreadlocks. I've had them for almost nine years. They are a lot of work. And if you don't really have running water, soap, a way to wash your hair and keep it this way, like... Are they? Are there bees? I didn't see a single bee in this game, but somehow everyone has nice, pristine dreadlocks. Well, it's you know, set in the future, so all all the bees are gone. <laughs> so if there's no bees, there's no beeswax. How are they dreading their hair? Exactly. Yeah. Um. And granted, anyone who's listening to this, if you're white, don't use bee. One, if you're white, you shouldn't have dreadlocks anyway. <laughs> but if you do decide to do it, don't use beeswax. It will rot your hair. Um, it's disgusting. And, you know, 
I played it, but that bothered me the whole time I was playing the game. I was just like, all of these characters that are, you know, they're that weird, not quite, you can't tell what race someone is. They're sort of kind of brown, but are they brown because they're in the sun all the time? Or are they actually brown because they're really brown? That that amorphous, you don't know what race anyone is, shade of brown. Yeah, it was uh, really weird. I was never really able to tell what type of person everybody was supposed to be representing other than the main character who just seemed like a white girl to me well she was she was very much a white girl and it's like you know they did the whole you know spoilers if you've not played horizon zero dawn uh but you know she does the whole i've lost my father i'm the chosen one and she i'm sorry white savior trope is what i was trying to think of earlier but she's like a clearly young she seems untested and oh my god aloy is here to save us when they didn't even want her, like, half these people didn't want her there, they exiled her, and I'm just like, y'all are really looking for this chick to save you when you didn't even want her as part of your tribe? Really? But, oh no, she's the only one with this person's DNA, and blah blah blah, and I'm just like, why? Why did Why did we just spend how many hours doing this? And you finally understand where the robo-dinos come from, and all this other stuff, and I'm just like, why? Why is this a thing? Why is... Why is this unproven girl the chosen one of these people? And it bothers me because our seasoned warriors are like, oh my god, we would have died if not for you, Aloy. And I'm like, are you for real? This, <laughs> this is what we're doing? If you enjoy a game mechanics, if you enjoyed like fighting the dinosaurs in it, and you enjoyed like the, the overarching story, is, is the distraction of um, the ways that you felt about those about the representation of those characters, does that completely ruin the game for you? It didn't ruin the game for me, but it was something for me that was present. And, you know, and people need to take this with a caveat of what I do on a daily basis is think about representation in games. So it's kind of hard to turn that off on occasion. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, and it's hard because there are a lot of people who were like, oh, my God, again, perfect. And it's a girl in it. And, and it's so great. And I'm just like, OK, but she's a white chick, a very unwilling reluctant heroes thrown into the hero's journey and when you get the season warriors like oh my god you're here to save us that broke the narrative more for me than than the terrible dreadlocks that a lot of these characters had because i was just like how how is this unseasoned girl that nobody wanted in their group in their tribe how is she our savior i think that when we consider the i the uh, idea of representation in video games, oftentimes people will first consider how it affects narrative. Mm-hmm. I The thing I'm mostly curious about, and I think people who listen to this show will know about me, is I'm, I'm a person who's gameplay first, narrative second. Like I'm always about um, you know the mechanics of the game being fun and enjoyable and the narrative coming after that as being sort of the secondary in my book. I know people play different, you know, video games for all different kinds of reasons, but that's that's the part that I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. So I I'm curious if there are examples of games where um having diverse representation actually affects the the moment to moment gameplay. And I'll throw out and I'll just sort of preface this with a an experience that I had. So Grand Theft Auto Five. Uh, for people who haven't played it, you can s- in that game. There's actually sort of three protagonists, and you can switch between them. Um, there's Trevor, Michael, and Franklin. 
Now, Trevor and Michael are both white characters, and Franklin is black. And I realized when I was playing that game that as I switched between these characters, outside of their, you know, each character has a, a, a special ability that's unique to that character. But outside of that, I didn't play any of those characters differently. I didn't play Franklin um, in a different way than I played Michael. And the world that I was moving through didn't really react differently to Franklin than it did to Michael. And in that case, the, you know, the Franklin's blackness and Michael's whiteness were simply there for the narrative side of things, but not really for a gameplay side of things. Um, are there any examples of, of games that you guys can think of where, um, you know, the aspects of the, the character, if it's, you know, their orientation or their ethnicity or anything like that actually affects the gameplay? Um, I mean, the only one that I could give that, I, that I'm familiar with is Skyrim. You know, people react to you in a certain way if you're Khajiit versus uh, Argonian versus a Red Guard or Nord or, or Breton. And that's the only one that really jumps out other than what it seems like Bioware tried to do with Inquisition, where that one particular uh, part of the game where you go to the area in Orlais and depending on your what you've picked you have approval and the best approval is a, is a human noble and it kind of goes down from there. But it was odd because none of that factors elsewhere. And it's not a thing that has been addressed or done in the game before. And it's kind of like, well, we're done with the section of the game back to just being the inquisitor. Who's for Sorna Andraste. If you're not human and we're just going to ignore the fact you said, Hey, I'm a dwarf. I don't believe in your God, but Hey, I'm the Herald of Andraste anyway. Well, what, what do we think about this game, South Park, The Fractured Butthole? Now, there was some controversy around this game when it was first coming out, when it was revealed that the difficulty setting in the game would affect the representation, the ethnic representation of the main character. And it would, the game, like the easy mode, I'm, I'm putting quotes around it, the easy mode, would, your character was white and the most difficult setting your character was black there's there's been more to this story that's sort of been revealed since the game came out but let's talk about that idea first so tanya when you when you found out about this um south park representing difficulty in this way what were your thoughts on that i was like that's gonna be a lie <laughs> or it's gonna go terribly it's gonna be one or the other and it turned out it was a lie yeah they totally um, copped out and thing is, it's South Park. I didn't trust them to do that well anyway. I I've never thought South Park was funny since I was seventeen. Um, and yes, I'm being I'm being kind of a snob about it. And I've I've never thought the juvenile humor in it was funny once I was no longer a juvenile. And I did not trust them to do anything that intentional, especially since they they suddenly could no longer discuss politics once our current dictator-in-chief was in office so i had no hope that that was going to be useful at all and when the article came out that haha just kidding i was like and no one here is surprised at all when i heard that south park was implementing something like this i thought the idea was interesting and i'm not talking about how they ended up implementing it or 
or any of that stuff. But to me, this started to get to that idea of what I was talking about with a game like Grand Theft Auto V in that our world, our, you know, the, the world that we live in is, is far from perfect. And people of color, uh, people in other marginalized communities have a harder time in this world than straight white men do. But I wasn't seeing that represented in video games in a gameplay sense. So, again, I, I, for South Park specifically, I, I, I wasn't sure how that was all going to like play out. But I thought that that like kernel of an idea could be something that was interesting and, and generate a discussion. It, it generated discussion, but I don't think anyone liked the discussion that came out of it, especially for <laughs> those of us that were like, okay, so you basically did the same trifling thing we kind of expected you to do. Because I, I, I heard about it and skeptical face was skeptical. And then when it turned out to be a lie, I was like, water's still wet. What did you all expect from this game and, and these folks? So, and it was weird because it came out of one arm of Ubisoft while we also got Assassin's Creed Origins. And I'm just like, what are you all doing? Uh, let, let's talk about something that <laughs> I guess could also generate some some anger in this discussion. Let's get everyone fired <laughs> up. There's a, there's a common argument that I hear, and I'm, I'm interested to get your take, Tanya, in that game developers create straight white male protagonists because it's mostly straight white men playing the games. Now, how, how do you respond to to that notion? How much can I cuss? <laughs> no, we're already uh, marked as explicit. Go for it. That's such a load of fucking bullshit. Um, most of the people I know who play games are people of color and queer and intersections thereof. And there's actual stats that people can go look because, hey, Google exists. That shows the majority of the market is no longer the 1835-year-old white dude it's women my age it's people of color it is actually majority people of color who own consoles and buy consoles and are playing games so statistically they're wrong if that's what if they're still thinking this then they're out of touch there's data that is gathered annually to show that that is no longer the case that is no longer the market and if gaming keeps catering to the audience that is no longer the majority they're just going to keep losing money. This is why some indies are doing better. This is why people are just making their own games and saying, screw you, AAA. Um, but not everyone can just go make their own, and that's never an argument to make to someone because while I can write, I can't code, I can't draw, I can't do music, so telling me to go make my own game really isn't useful. It's, it's yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, indie games because I feel like in a lot of these discussions where... It, you know, in a lot of our episodes of this podcast where we talk about certain mechanics that are aging or that we think could be improved upon in games, I think the indie space is providing sort of the, the counterexamples, the proof that that these alternative ideas can, you know, can succeed and thrive. And I, I think that, you know, if for this discussion in particular, yeah, it's, it's great that the indie space seems to embrace um, – diversity in, in representation um let's let's move towards wrapping this this conversation up what do we want to see in the future from video game developers and how can the industry improve and now tanya i'll pitch this to you first what can be done better in the future in regards to representation in the protagonist role and the protagonist role is 
for the love of God, please take stories out of medieval Europe when you're making fantasy. Um, there's plenty of other places with way more fascinating stories. Um, but also look at your look around the table, see who's in your studio. Ask yourself, are we just a room full of white dudes? And if so, why is that? Are we just hiring our college buddies? Are we not having fair and open searches? Which the answer is probably not. Um, while I was in San Francisco um, for, I'm sorry, when I was in Seattle for PAX West, I had a chance to sit down with Tim Schaefer of Double Fine because he has actually made the call for doing better because he looked around the studio and realized, hey, we could do better. Um, so things like that, helping people get in the industry, if you're a game dev and there's a local scene like New York, Seattle, California, maybe reach out to people, see if mentorship programs are available, if you can start one, if you have the bandwidth, or just try to go to conventions, be available if you can. Now, with the caveat, a lot of studios keep a very tight rein on their devs, which in some cases for good reason, um... But we also need to demystify the whole thing about game development. And we, if, if we can get past the I'm going to send you a death threat because you put a feature in a game I don't like part of, of gaming culture, um, maybe we can actually have more transparency and, and see more developers doing panels and, and doing things like that and talking about it. And E3, I would like to see more people like me on stage at E3 See more people of color at PAX talking about game development, not just it sucks to be brown in the industry, or it sucks to be a woman in the industry, or queer in the industry, because those panels, while can be valuable for some people, for those of us doing those panels, we're kind of over it. Um, and resources. If you have the monetary means, give to organizations that are doing the work. Give Or when you see people going, hey, we're a col small college and we're doing this conference to help our students get into game development and you see like oh this is a college like in an area that is underserved which is you know code word for poor brown folks do what you can whatever ways you can or even if it's just as simple as retweeting and sharing job opportunities and if you see a job opportunity and it's worded poorly and maybe that's keeping you from applying reach out to the people hiring go you know you may get more talent if you change your wording, because for me seeing your job posting, this is a big red flag that maybe I'm not going to fit in in your company, because we know fit is something that is used to kind of skirt the skirt actual good hiring practices. So access hiring practices as for protagonists, diversify the people in your room, diversify the people in your studio, and actually listen, because a lot of people, even if the studio is diverse, they don't speak up because they're not sure that they'll be heard or or paid attention to or it's not going to become hostile if they do speak up. I think that this that part of the responsibility for this for making a change in the industry is on us the players in playing the games and buying the games that are you know making positive changes or are representing people of different backgrounds and different ethnicities and different orientations and all that stuff that part of that responsibility lies with us, the players mm -hmm. and, and <laughs> beyond that, if you have, if you're a person online and you have an issue with a game and you look to your left and you look to your right and the people who have that same issue are straight white men 
like yourself, think about like wh- why why that is. Like think about why you're on one particular side of an argument. Um, because I, I that shit bugs the crap out of me. Of when I when I see like like we'll go all the way back to Gamergate, and it's like all the people who had issues with with Gamergate are like straight white men. Like, why do you have, why are these the people, you know, like, why do you feel that your opinion in this matter is in some way like underrepresented that you need to be like speaking up in this way? So just think about maybe why you're, you're in the company that you are. If you're, if you're finding yourself being particularly vocal online, but that's me. I'm, I'm hopping down off my soapbox. Jared, what, what can the industry do, do better in the future? Um, I don't know that the answer is, having white people write other representations of people that they don't have experience with. Um, I, well, I think that while it's always good to strive to do better, um, Tanya, what I think your work, why your work is so important is getting people of color involved and interested in the game making process so that we're seeing their backgrounds represented in the end product. I think that uh, ultimately will be the the most positive change for the industry. Yeah, and you know, and the other part too is that there are people of color in the industry, they're just not visible, and that's the hard part. That's as simple as like, if you're going to have, uh, like you're going to show a trailer at, at E3, like have your have your presenter be someone that represents a, you know, a, a marginalized community. And that, and that goes a long way to making the industry feel more inviting for people who are not just white dudes um did we did we fix it no no i don't think so that's the disappointing thing about like this conversation is i I feel like it's not a problem isolated to video games either which makes no it it, no it's not i mean you can look at you can look at politics today and see that this is this is something that that touches everywhere in in everyone's lives um and it's you know and Tanya, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like sometimes I I get, I, I feel like these conversations are exhausting and not, not from like, uh, oh, I'm so tired of talking about it, but just like the fact that we have to keep having these conversations over and over again to get people to open up becomes exhausting. I, I look forward to the day and I, it may not happen in my lifetime. Hopefully it happens in my kid's lifetime when these, these kinds of conversations become far less necessary. Yeah, and the thing is, and this is something that I think a lot of people bring up and you know, they think that it's either witty or comforting or what have you. They go, "Oh, racists will just die out." And I'm like, "No, racists just make more racists, and it doesn't get any better. It doesn't change." And they basically just teach other people to continue to be racist. So, it's that's not not an answer either to sit around and basically wait for the races to die off. Hopefully this discussion helps. I mean, even if it, you know, turns at least one person onto an alternative way of thinking about video games and representation, then um, I will, I will have considered this a success. Um, and I encourage anyone, if you have questions or comments about the discussion that we had, send them our way. Uh, you can always reach out to us at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter uh also we're we're always taking ideas for uh episode topics in the future so send those along as well um let's 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 hear what the community has to say about some of our previous topics jared what have, what have people been saying about our show uh we have an email that came in from ashley in california 
She says, hey guys, I really enjoyed your episode on stealth mechanics with Khalif Adams. What a cool dude. He has such a good positive attitude and had a lot to bring to the conversation. I bet he doesn't play with a Y axis, inverted Y axis. <laughs> Wait, did we forget to ask Khalif in that episode? You know, I think we've we've left it out of the past couple episodes. We've, oh no! We, we, well, let's let's rectify that right now. Tanya, lacking. when you play on a uh, when you play on a controller, do you invert your Y axis or no? No, I don't. Oh, you don't. Oh, that seems to be the majority of people. <laughs> yeah, Jared, Jared and I, Jared and I both invert our Y axis, but we've discovered that m- most of our guests. Do not. So our we're audience the, uh, is turning the odd against man us out. here. Yeah. Saying, saying that <laughs> we're... <Aww. laughs> um, but she goes on to say, I want to talk about my first experience with a stealth-like game as a kid. Uh, it was called Home Alone, yes, based on the movie, and I played it on my beloved Sega Game Gear. Different platforms had different gameplay, but on Game Gear, you had to protect several houses in your neighborhood from being robbed and flooded by the wet bandits while waiting 20 minutes for the police to arrive. You could slut around in the snow, going house to house to lay traps before the bandits arrived. However, if you were in a house with the bandits, you had to avoid being captured. Uh, they would grab you and string you up and uh, on the wall by your shirt And uh, while they continued robbing the house. It was scary to be captured, so you had to make really good traps and get out of the house quickly or try to hide or run from the bandits to avoid it. She says, I love that game, although apparently it was not a hit with the game community. Amanda Dryson of Mega said that the game wasted a film license and a, quote, grotesquely overpriced and pathetically underdeveloped mockery of a game, unquote. Uh, Megatech wow. said the game would only appeal to junior players, which it did because I was like eight when I played it. Have you guys heard or played that game? What stealthy junior game do you think kids should play first? Uh, I had... I have not heard of it. No, I, I did have a, a, a Home Alone game for the original Game Boy. Uh, and that was not like that. It might have been Home Alone 2 because I think it was set in a hotel. And I remember like having to dodge vacuum cleaners or something. But I, I don't remember this uh, stealth-based Home Alone that's game. My, that's my favorite scene from rad. the movie when he has to dodge the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya, do you have experience with the Home Alone games at all? Oh, no. I I, I was well above and beyond the age of... of- <laughs> <laughs> of audience when those came out there's that goose game that's coming out where you play a goose hiding oh, from yeah, that that's farmer a, that's so a that, good one that might be kind of cool for kids to to jump into the stealth world they i haven't seen a whole lot for that yet but i like the idea of just running around the farmer and grabbing his keys to complete objectives or whatever it is i want to get to this one jared real quick this uh Go for it. this tweet from alex lemkovich he said um we, we tweeted out a link to one of the videos that he did about stealth gameplay. He has a YouTube channel called Stealth Docs, and he thanked us, and he said, enjoyed listening to your thoughts, but for the first stealth game, you'll want to check this out. And he linked us another video, which we will go ahead and uh, and tweet out to everyone. But basically, the video was about Manbiki Shouju, or Manbiki Shoyen, which is a Japanese game. We talked about it back in episode 15. Sounds familiar. We- yeah, so we were talking in that one. We were talking about survival horror, and we talked about this game called Nostromo, another Japanese game. Um, and we were talking about what influenced the making of that game, which was this stealth game, which is called Manbiki Shouju. And when we were putting together the show notes for our stealth episode, I had, I was like, I'm gonna go find more information about this because I bet that's the first example of a stealth game. And when I started doing research, I could find nothing about this game, and when he sent me that video, 
he pronounced so the the name that I had was Manbiki Shoju, and when he produced that video, he used the name Manbiki Shoyen. And I think that that's the correct name for that game. So I just wanted to sort of issue a, a correction to our episode 15 discussion and then also say like, yeah, that's probably the first example of a stealth game. What was uh, the premise? Uh, the premise is you are a thief stealing from a 7-Eleven. I think it's literally a 7-Eleven. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it was um, overlooked and I feel bad that we... Um, that we didn't get that information correct in that episode for the, the first example. Um, but yeah, it was a, the Japanese game Manbiki Shoju, and thank you to Alex for setting the record straight on that one. I wanted to make sure we, we got to that. So thank you, Alex and everyone should go check out his YouTube channel stealth docs. He does uh, good work over there. Uh, really thoroughly researched and, um, and put together in an, inter- in an interesting way. So go check that out. All right, that's going to do it for listener emails. Thank you to everyone that wrote into us. We had uh, a lot more feedback that uh, unfortunately we didn't have a chance to get to in this episode, but we will hold on to it and get to it in a future one. So if you sent us something and didn't hear it here, keep your ear out in the future. Again, if you want to send us any more feedback, it's always podcast at gbfeature.com. And that's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Tanya DePass. Tanya, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Um, this was a discussion that... You know, as much fun as I have on this show talking about things like boss battles and difficulty settings and all that kind of stuff, this was a discussion I was really looking forward to having. So I was I was happy when you proposed it as uh, something that you wanted to talk about. But thank you for being here. You're so, so welcome. This is fun. Well, thank you. And for people who are interested in your work, where can they keep up with you online? Um, easiest? Well, I'm, I'm pretty much cipher of tier across everything which is C-Y-P-H-E-R-O-F-T-Y-R. Uh, just a note of warning due to people on Twitter and other unsavory elements of the internet. I do have a block list going, so if you try to follow me and find that you're blocked, I do apologize. Please let me know in some other means. Uh, but pretty much Cypher of Tear on Twitter, Tumblr, Twitch, my website, uh, Patreon, because that is literally how I pay my bills and keep doing the work of I Need Diverse Games. And as for I Need Diverse Games... You can find us at INeedDiverseGames.net because who has two thumbs and messed up their own website? That would be me, so .org does not work right now. Um, and if you want to contact me or I Need Diverse Games, I-N-D-G at INeedDiverseGames.org, that email does work. Um, and we're on Patreon, at Twitch, etc. And I will happily have all of those links for the show notes for you all. Excellent. Right on. Well, thank you again for, for taking the time to join us. As a reminder, we release new episodes of this show every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes, give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. And I'm at Jared Bruner. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Now, this is typically the part of the show where I would say it's okay to disagree, which I think is fine for matters of artistic opinion. But for today's episode, I'll simply close the show by saying keep an open mind and an open heart. Have a good night, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you.